Hey there. Before this podcast begins, I just want to say a couple of things about the audio. First of all, you may at times in the background hear some traffic noise. That is because I recorded this from my car. Um, It's very minor, but you may hear it, and that's what that is. Secondly, I just want to apologize for um, some of the coughing that I do from time to time, just clearing my throat. It is allergy season here in North Carolina. I mentioned this in the podcast as well, but just wanted to give you a heads up. Hope you enjoy this episode. So every time I sit down to articulate some thoughts around um, beliefs, particularly I'm going through my church's tradition statement of faith and taking it piece by piece and, and really exploring how I actually do feel about it. And I'm going to share those reflections on this podcast. But every time I sit down to, to, to work on that, to actually start thinking through that, I start thinking of all the disclaimers I need to give um, before, I, before I start saying some of the things that, that I want to say. And uh, you can call them disclaimers. I, I prefer to call it prolegomena. And that's just the Bible school student in me, I guess. Uh, prolegomena is basically what you need to say before you can say what you need to say. And it's an important piece to understanding, in my opinion. I think a lot of times we jump into conversations without first establishing um some realistic facts about the way this conversation may go down. You know, we don't we don't often enter conversations and talk about our biases or talk about our social location or, you know, any of those things. And now it's even kind of offensive to some people to even suggest that we we do such a thing. But I do think it's a, it's an important thing to do is to say what you need to say before you say what you need to say. And so that's what I'm going to do a little bit of um Today and maybe a few more times here on this podcast before I I really start sharing uh, my belief work. In 2020, after I left the church, um, I didn't know I'd left the church, by the way. I actually um, told the church that I was pastoring, that I wanted to continue in membership there. I wanted to attend there. Uh, but after a few months of being out of church, it, it became clear to me that I, for for, for me, I needed to uh, uh, to be away. And I am um, a recovering pastor. My name is Daniel Rushing. And I used to be a pastor, so I re- I resist the I've resisted that urge to feel as though the church needs me, um, because I know right now I need to be alone and. Call it a wilderness experience, call it what you will, um, it, it's where I've been and where I've been at peace at. And, you know, leaving the church and not going to church every Sunday changed some rhythms in my life and, you know, left me looking outside of the church and the Bible uh, for, for some help, for some development, for some growth, Right. And, you know, at, I want to say a couple other things, too. I, I quit reading the Bible then. I'm, I am reading the Bible some now. <clears throat> I say some, you know. Um, 
Not as much as I was when I was pastoring, but probably still more than most people. Excuse me. And, you know, I wasn't reading my Bible. I just did not want, did not even want to open it. (laughs) I had spent, I've spent so much time in the Bible for the past 20 years. It was just the last place I wanted to go. And, um, I don't know how it happened, but a series of events, I, I ended up being turned on to the uh, books by Napoleon Hill, which growing up in the church, we were always told, stay away from self-help, stay away from, you know, all that kind of stuff because you just need to rely on God and, um, even therapy, you know, like I, I, I was in the church during you know what some philosophers have called the therapeutic age, um, which began in the 70s. And I, you know, so I'm 20 years in in the 90s as a teenager, you know, old enough to be in church and understand what was going on. And I remember preachers saying things about how you know therapy's great, and if you need it, you know, if if you know it's medical and you need it, go. But uh, but really, you just need to trust God. God's better than any therapist, better than any self-help book. You know, and there was even like a lot of verses that were used to kind of tell us not to believe in ourselves, not to trust ourselves. We're fallen creatures. We can't be trusted. There's no good in us. And so for a while, I I, I floundered leaving the church because I didn't know where to look, you know, like, um, and I guess too, that's some of you who are really deeply embedded in the church may be thinking, yeah, that's conviction. And I had that thought at the time, like, you know, is this conviction? My my hesitancy to, to look anywhere else, even in therapy, I don't think I really opened up in therapy as I should have. And a lot of that was because I compartmentalized in my mind, okay, these are the life things that are happening. I'm going to talk about those to my therapist, but the spiritual stuff, therapists don't have a clue. And what I was missing and what I'm learning more about now is the link between spirituality and psychology, uh, which I started to understand a little bit in, in, in uh, grad school through counseling classes, but even, um, but even more so now. So I stumbled upon the books of, of Napoleon Hill and they were good for me because I needed money at the time. Um, I left ministry, sold our house, started a new business and all we had was a few months of savings. So it was do or die. And you know, Napoleon Hill, uh, think and grow rich. It had changed the lives of people. You know, I, I had heard that it had changed the lives of people. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of people. Tony Robbins is one of them. Joseph McClendon III is another. Uh, these are self-help gurus, if you will. Of course, they don't like that term and probably not completely appropriate. But their lives were changed through this book. So it has a story much like the Bible does. It's also is a book that even the the author in the beginning gives a hermeneutic for, a way to interpret, and you know basically says, um, if you listen. And if you, if you pay attention, and if, if you're ready to hear it, the secrets of wealth and success are here. But when you read the book, there really isn't a lot of secrets. But the first time I listened to it, chains started to fall off of my mind. I started to really understand and get a, a better financial acumen and a better understanding of myself and you know all this kind of stuff. And so I got turned on to Napoleon Hill, and then I found out that he wrote a book in which he um, dialogues with uh, with the devil, and I read that book. And um, he wrote it during a stage of depression. His wife did not want it published because she thought that people would think he was crazy. She also was a little superstitious, and she thought the devil might come after them. <laughs> um, 
But um, but yeah, and I'll provide the link to that book in the uh, in in the description. The, the title is slipping my mind right now, um, but it's something like a conversation with the devil, something to that effect. And I'll I'll put that in the uh, the, the uh, notes of this podcast. So I, I really got turned on to, to like Napoleon Hill and then his disciples, if you will. Um, got turned on to Joseph McClendon III. Got turned on to Tony Robbins and read a lot of their stuff and listened to their podcast and um, and all that kind of thing. And it was a very, very important part of the process for me that I just now realized I probably needed to share with you. Um, now, <clears throat> a lot of it sounded like the prosperity gospel that I completely rebuked in church. <clears throat> and so I just want to say up front, obviously there are um, plot holes and disconnections in that world as well. Uh, and they miss the mark as well. <clears throat> but suffice to say that um, it gave me, gave me manna in my wilderness. And it did transform my life. And it, it helped me get out, of get out of depression. And um, I know the Bible has worked for other people. But to be honest with you, the Bible really never helped me um, connect some of the dots that I needed to connect to actually see my depression for what it is and the work of, of, uh, people outside of the theology world that were still deeply concerned about personal and spiritual growth helped me immensely. And believe it or not, that is just the introduction to this podcast. <laughs> um, and I want to say too, please forgive me uh, for coughing. Uh, it is allergy season in here in North Carolina. <clears throat> Uh, whatever it is that really gets me is, is getting me the worst at this, this time of the year. So one day I watched the um, documentary on Netflix about Tony Robbins called I Am Not Your Guru. And um, I suggest you watch it. It's a good documentary. And uh, during the documentary, um, or at the very beginning of the documentary, there's a scene where Tony's doing one of his keynote seminars. <clears throat> and there's a young boy there who um, is d been fighting suicidal thoughts. And, of course, this is all pre-planned, um, but Tony comes down, pulls him out of the audience, and begins to dialogue with him. And just through a, through a few questions and statements... Uh, this this young man just emotionally he, he broke and you could just see the chains falling off and I had a, a cathartic response to that scene because it looked a lot like what I saw growing up in, in church and um, you know for those who aren't familiar with Pentecostal services especially Pentecostal revival services uh, it's not uncommon for a pastor to be moved by the Spirit and call you out of your seat, call you to the front, call you to the center of the aisle, and start to basically read you. Uh, we used to call it reading your mail, prophesying over you. I mean, I've seen I've seen some crazy things. I've um, I've seen people get caught out and and like their sins be revealed, you know, right there to the church. Um. And or or not even they might you know and for all I know it might not even have been like 
a legitimate sin, you know. Um, but, you know, because it was always, a lot of these things were always very generic in nature. But, uh, and I'd been called out before, and sometimes these moments were very helpful and empowering and, I mean, transforming. I, I've had chains fall off of my life through these experiences. And, uh, but I've also, I've also been traumatized by some of the experiences. Uh, one in particular, <clears throat> when I was a teenager, we had um, a husband and wife team come and do a marriage, like a service on marriage <clears throat> or whatever. And during the altar service, the uh, altar service is something we do at the end of the preaching. Um, the, the speaker came down and, and started to do this with me, started to read me. And, you know, I was like 16, 15 or 16 years old. And he says, the Lord knows you struggle with lust and masturbation. <laughs> and, you know, as a 16 year old, I was like, oh, my God, no, especially in the tradition that I grew up in where that was just, you know, you pluck out your eye if you lust after a woman. Uh, of course, no one ever did. <clears throat> the only person I knew with one eye <laughs> in my childhood was my grandfather, and he definitely did not go to church. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, it was a scary thing. But um, looking back, now that I'm an adult, I'm like, well, no shit. I was 16 years old, a boy in the throes of testosterone poisoning. Um, but at any rate, the point being, those kind of things happened in, in, you know, in our church settings. And getting caught out and being read was a, was a very common part of being Pentecostal, and I assume it still is, you know. And I watched this scene with Tony Robbins, and Tony did a beautiful job of really tapping into this guy, um, his energy, and, and really seeing him for where he was at, and then, and then helping him change states, helping him get out of where he was at to where he could be free. And I had saw that in church, you know. I, I had seen people get called out and and worked, you know, ministers working with them, praying with them, um, being led by the Spirit to speak into their life is what we would call it. <clears throat> and when all else fails, change their state. Get them dancing, you know. I want you to just to take a walk around this church right now. You know, that's one thing I would do as a preacher. I've seen other preachers do. I want you to take a victory lap around this church and whatever that thing is, I want you to claim victory over it. And these, you know, people have a cathartic response to this. Um, and it is, and I am not downplaying, it's a spiritual moment. The Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it. Um, I know even in the church I grew up in, people argued over what to call the Holy Spirit. Is it Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost? So, you know, the Spirit... <clears throat> And there's these, and that's very common in Pentecostalism to have these cathartic kind of responses. But I saw what Tony did, and 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 then when Tony taught, he didn't hide what he was doing. And this is what this is what I want to talk about for just a few more minutes in the in the podcast today. He didn't hide what he was doing. There was no dishonesty in it. During the seminar, when he's up on stage, they would take breaks where they would play music and he would tell everybody to get up and start jumping. <clears throat> Put your hands up. Put your hands down. Stand up. Sit down. Turn around. Talk to your neighbor. Hug somebody. Shake somebody's hand. Throw your hands in the air. Jump around. Right? Uh, that is what um, they did. And um, 
his staff, everyone, they're getting everyone kind of into the moment. And then afterwards, he explains why. And he talks about the power of changing your state, okay? And and and, and in, in the teachings of Tony Robbins, uh, Lord, I never thought those words would come out of my mouth, um, but they were helpful, and I, I think they're helpful. That's why I would share. That's why I'm sharing them. And if they're not helpful for you, then just you know keep listening. And there's other stuff that might be. <laughs> but you know, in the teachings of Tony Robbins, a lot of times our minds get in bad states, and when we can't change the state of our mind, we need to change the state of our of our of our physicality. Right? That by changing the state of our being. Um, then we change the we can change the state of our mind because the way we think and the way we feel affects the way we act in our body. Right, uh, makes us slump, maybe hold our head down. If we're really depressed, makes us want to sleep a lot. You know, makes us want to kind of disengage that kind of thing. Um, so it makes sense. You change your state. If you can't change it on one side, if you can't change your mind to change the state of your body. It's actually sometimes easier to change the state of your body and let that change the state of your mind. Um, this is common, I think, practice and knowledge to us, even if it's on a subconscious level. Um, if you've ever gotten angry and needed to take a walk, that's a great example. Um, if you've ever, you know, been in the office, and it's been a long day and it's frustrating, sometimes a good stretch and some deep breaths can make a difference and it's because you're changing states. And this is what we were doing in church, you know, um, a, a bit of uh, a bit of uh, metaphysical alchemy, if you will, helping people change states. Um, when I watched this uh, seminar, I I mean, I was it was cathartic. I cried. I felt like I was in church, and it was a weird experience. It's like, oh no, this is what I've always been told: don't let the devil mislead you. He's got a copycat for everything. Um, but this wasn't copycat because just like the things I felt in church that I knew were real and I could never look back on them and say that did not happen, this was something that was very real and felt to me and it definitely happened and it was, it was good and helpful for me. <clears throat> because what it showed me was is that the practices in the church that I had begun to get kind of cynical of weren't so bad after all, Right. Like, maybe there's nothing really wrong with getting together and chanting things we think about God and jumping up and down while we do it to change our state. The problem is, for me, I think we need to be more honest about that. Just tell the truth. Just tell the truth. I think telling the truth... If we could just get to a place in the church where we do that, um, I think that I think that that would be a sign that the church was on on a course of correction, um, a, a, a corrective course that is desperately needed, given the apocalyptic times that that we've just uh, that we've just been living through. Just tell the truth, you know. But instead, what was done in the church was. We played the God card to use um, things that could be good and beneficial to manipulate and control people and to keep people afraid, right? And to keep things normal and status quo as much as possible is really the goal. 
and it's funny because they would say, um, you know, we're against the status quo. You know, God's here to disrupt the status quo. Um, but within the church, the church kind of had its own status quo. And so fear and manipulation and control uh, were and, 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 and guilt are the best ways to kind of uh, maintain that. So that's, that's been one of my, you know, one, one of the things that has stood out to me about my unraveling is a lot of it is just me wanting to be more truthful about things. Okay, now that's an example of being truthful about the way um, that we that we act or, or or things that we do as part of our uh, worship or liturgy, especially in the Pentecostal church. But I, I think that there's a lot of areas that it's important for the church to just be honest about. I think the church needs to be honest about the Bible, and that's the first belief I'm probably <clears throat> going to talk about on here is my beliefs about the Bible, and it's a touchy subject. And I just feel like the church needs to be honest, you know, just be honest. Um, one of the things I wish the church was honest about is anytime a church says, you can't just take out one part of the Bible and ignore the rest, or focus on one part and ignore other parts, when that is literally why we have denominations, and I know some of you are not going to like my use of the word literally there, but just indulge me a moment. That is why we have different denominations, okay? Um, and, and within those denominations and different faith traditions, people believe all kinds of things more than they believe other things in the Bible, you know? Um, and we preach way more on other things than we do other things on in the Bible. And we teach certain things way more than we teach other things in the Bible, it's just ridiculous to say that, that we don't do that and that we don't need to do that, okay? Times have changed. <laughs> and, you know, you say, well, God never changes. The interesting thing is, is that that's true. The, but in the Bible, God is never static, right? And, and in fact, that is, that is the scandal of Abraham's version of monotheism, uh, which is the Ju Christian Judeo tradition, and that is, you can't put God into a form, and even the name of God in that tradition is a breath, Yahweh without the vowels. Um, and in Hebrew, it's just, it's, it's like a breath. And God gives himself different names. And sometimes God appears in wind, and sometimes fire, and sometimes earthquake, and sometimes a still small voice. And so when you say, God never changes, okay, but we don't know enough about God, uh, you know, to be able to really say um, what is what is what is God and what is not God without discernment, because God can be many things. He doesn't just fit in one form. And so, if God never changes, the one thing that never changes about God is that God is always um, changing, at least in our perception of Him, right? Um, you know, he, we, we see even in, even if you're a dispensationalist, which I'm not, you would say God changed, or, or at least our perception of God changed from the God of the Old Testament to the God of the New Testament. We, we preach in dispensationalist belief systems. We preach Old Testament different than we preach New Testament. So yes, right, I just feel like we need to be honest about this kind of stuff. Times change. God 
with our very limited knowledge of him, cannot be put into any of our forms, and that is the scandal of monotheism. Basically, don't try to make me into your image and keep my name out of your mouth. That's the first two commandments. And, <clears throat> and we're also unique theologies to the tribalism in the Middle East at that time. Groundbreaking. I just think we need to be honest about it. So the Bible, the way we worship. Another thing I feel like the church needs to be honest about is our humanity. You know, um, 2020 and even before then, but especially the last couple of years, maybe even the last five years, we've been able to see more and more um, a lot of the, uh, you know, mega church pastors or well-known ministers were discovering their faults. We're, we're discovering that they weren't the best people at times, maybe not even any of the time. Um, some of them were abusers. Um, some of them were <clears throat> um, not careful with their with their the use of their power or their money. Um, some of them were very greedy. Some of them, um, you know, were doing things to make themselves rich on the backs of, of others. Now, all these things have been happening, and it's like every time we're surprised or we get cynical and we're like, a church is just full of those people, right? That's it's are all like that. You know, and, and they all end up like that. And it's like, then the church gets mad. Well, don't judge all of us based on one. Can we just get over ourselves, people? When I went to Gardner-Webb, I had a young minister ask me one day, he's like, if you, if you had one, one thing you, you, say, you would say you've learned in ministry over the past you know, few years, several years, what would you say you've learned in ministry? What is the one thing that stands out? And it took me no time to answer it. The thing I've learned in ministry the most is that everybody's really fucked up and we're all trying the best we can. And I just wish we were honest about that, you know? I think about like the Jerry Falwell scandal and the Ravi Zacharias one really stand out in my mind. Um, Ravi Zacharias one is a, is definitely um, a, a case of sexual predatorism and abuse and abuse of power. And then on the Falwell side, um, You've got a guy who basically just didn't live up to any of the standards that, you know, he said that uh, that everyone else should live up to. He's out drinking. Uh, he's out having uh, non-monogamous sexual partners. And, you know, it's like everybody, everybody's in the church is kind of surprised when it happens. And everybody outside of the church is like, well, we saw that coming. Just another one of them. And I'm looking at the guy and I'm just thinking, man, how different would things have been if we were just more honest about our humanity and that we are just really, really highly evolved, high-functioning apes who, who still have a little bit of an animal brain and do some, do some off-the-wall, irrational, crazy things, that none of us have perfect lives, that all of us have dysfunction in our families, and we're just all trying our best. And instead of using the guilt and the shame and all of this stuff to try to change people's behaviors or, 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 or whatever. It just doesn't uh, seem to be a fruitful enterprise when, especially when you, when you believe a scripture that says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So I don't know. Maybe it's a crazy idea, but I just feel like we can be more truthful about these things. Be truthful be, be more honest about what our worship is. Be more honest about, uh, about the Bible and what, we're, what we are drawing from as, as a source of authority and what we're calling a source of authority. 
you know, if you're in a church tradition that believes that. <clears throat> and then finally be honest about, you know, be honest about who we are as humans, you know, and that, that life is messy and it, it gets dysfunctional and, um, and, and we're all apt to make mistakes. And, uh, and sometimes mistakes are necessary because people have to go through stuff to learn from it and to, to grow and to become better and to see their shadow and to, to kind of explore at times even. And, you know, in ministry, I saw this all the time. And it was heartbreaking the way people would just beat themselves up for being human, for just going through stuff. Um, and I just feel like we need to be, we need to be honest, need to be more honest about that. I think one reason um, that we're afraid to be honest about some of these things is because we're afraid that if we're honest about it, we'll have to admit some things that we're wrong about in, in the stories that we've, uh, that we've created in our minds to give us meaning. And that's where we, 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 we derive meaning from as humans. We, we create narratives, we create stories. And a great fear as a human that we bear, that we have, is that you know one day we'll wake up and realize that our, our story wasn't true. Um, that all the pain or, or any of the pain that we've been feeling uh, may be the result of our own story or the belief of our stories being wrong. It's kind of like the Wizard of Oz, you know? In the Wizard of Oz, from the very beginning of that story, the characters and the reader are led to believe that all the answers are found in the Emerald City because that is where the great Oz is. And it turns out, spoiler alert, uh, that the great Oz is, um, is not uh, very great at all. And, <laughs> and the way this is discovered is the veil is torn down. It's an apocalyptic moment. And we've been living in apocalyptic times. And people are seeing the church for what it is, and they're seeing themselves for who they are, and they're seeing the world for what it is more clearly than maybe they have in the past, at least within in, in this generation. And in these times of apocalypses, the veil comes down and the truth is told. And in The Wizard of Oz, the curtain comes down and the truth is told, and come to find out the truth is that the wizard is not really that great at all. Um, the wizard... Um, can't meet the needs, the felt needs of the strangers who come for his help. And here's the funny thing about The Wizard of Oz. If you, if you watch the movie, it kind of ends there, right? Like there's a few more minutes, but not a lot of time is given to it. In the book, that revelation happens kind of halfway in the story. Uh, it's sort of the first climax of the story, but it's not the end of the story. What you discover is that even though the, Oz, the, the great Oz is a hoax, and even though the, the, the structure, the system, the institution that claimed to hold all the answers, Emerald City, was really just an illusion. Everybody's walking around with green-colored goggles on in the book to make everything look green, okay? Um, so it's all a facade, and it all comes tumbling down, you know, midway through the story, but what happens after the story is you discover the magic of, of Oz is still present. The magic is still there. The witches are still doing magic. The monkeys are still doing magic. You know, there are, there are uh, like um, people, like different, different uh, people groups within Oz as they travel from town to town. 
that have certain magical powers. There are talking mice that can work together and, and, and do great tasks for the heroes. So the, the one moral of the story is telling the truth about the inadequacies of the institutions that try to hold monopoly on the world's magic does not get rid of the world's magic. The world is full of beauty. The world is full of spirit. The world is full of life. You can find it just about anywhere you look, including books by Napoleon Hill. <laughs> it's there. It's, it's breathing under the surface all around us at all times. It's there. We don't need the man behind the curtain <laughs> for it to be there. And when we, when we have that sort of revelation, much like the characters in The Wizard of Oz, it is only then that we can tap in to what our Creator has already put in us. In The Wizard of Oz, come to find out, all the characters had everything they looked for. And if you read their backstories in the book, you, you discover um, that their Creator had already given it to them. Their Creator had already given it to them. They just did not see it. And it, it did, they did not see it until the institution of the Emerald City was unveiled for what it is. And at that point, the magic was unleashed and the characters found their courage, found their brains, found their heart, and found their way home. And for me, um, that's a story that I think um, holds very important significance. For those of us who have an ear, let us hear. Just tell the truth. <laughs>